Please bow with me. Lord, we pray you'd come and meet with us now as we hear your word. Lord, I pray for this message, that it would be faithful to the truth of your word. Pray that the message would be clear to point to the text and what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would humble us, that you would bring good fruit in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit as we listen this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you rather preach a wedding ceremony or a funeral service? That was a question someone asked me recently. I haven't been asked that a whole lot. I had to think about it for a second. I mean, the question wasn't, which one would I rather attend? I mean, if you come up and tell me this week, we're engaged, we're getting married, I'm going to respond with joy. If you tell me news of a funeral, that's going to be sad. So it wasn't, which one would I rather attend? It was, which one would I rather preach at? And as I thought about it for a moment, I thought, I think I'd rather preach at a funeral. Don't get me wrong, I love preaching at weddings. It's a wonderful opportunity to point to human marriage, husband and wife, and the image that is of Jesus Christ and His love for His bride, the church. It's helpful for me as a preacher and just growing my desire to want to love more like Jesus loves as a husband, right? So love preaching at, at weddings, but there's something different about preaching at a funeral. It's a humbling moment at a funeral when you realize that the deceased, the person that you've gathered to remember, that one day, unless Jesus returns first, that's going to be every one of us. That each one of us will have a day where our family members and our friends gather at our death. It's, it's a humbling moment. And sometimes when I preach at a wedding, I, I understand people are excited, some, some excited to hear the word. Uh, some may be surprised to hear a sermon at a wedding and maybe wanting to get on out of there and get on to the party and the reception. But when, when I preach at a funeral, there's a moment where the Lord uses that to humble us, a moment of, of, of sober-mindedness where we think about the reality of, of death. Even, even recently when I was in my barber shop and I went in just before Christmas and realized that the barber in the chair over from me received news he was in the ICU on a ventilator, and sadly the next time I went back, uh, he had passed and they had had his funeral. And there was an opportunity right there in the barber's chair that I had with my barber and, and others, I'm sure, overheard it, to talk about Jesus and the reality of death that didn't present itself in other conversations that I'd had with my barber over the years. And I don't think anybody was offended by it. We were thinking about death, the reality of, of death, the brevity of this life, the certainty of death. And for Christians, we have a message to preach. The life is brief and death is certain. There is hope and there is victory found in Jesus Christ. There's a message to be preached at funerals that though that one day will be us and though we have a moment of mourning and sadness, it's also for Christians an opportunity for us to mourn as those who have hope, hope in Jesus, not hope in empty cliches. We don't, we don't say that someone's gone to be with Jesus just because it sounds nice or maybe because we're committed to positive thinking. We say that because Jesus said it. And it's true that all who would trust in Him, He is the resurrection and the life. If you believe in Him, you'll never die. You'll live forever with Him. You see, funerals are often an occasion that God uses to draw our eyes away from the busyness of this fleeting life to look to His everlasting 
promises. Well, today we look in the book of Genesis and a part of the story where Abraham loses his wife, Sarah. It's the occasion of her death. And we see him mourning, he's, he's filled with sadness, but we also see him filled with hope. Hope in the promises of God. It's a powerful passage, don't skip over it. It's a powerful passage where we see God's promises brought him hope in life and in death. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 23. We're going to be in this chapter this morning. If you want to take that pew Bible in front of you and turn to page 16, page 16 in Genesis chapter 23. If you've come this morning and you don't own a Bible, uh, use that Bible this morning and then take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Genesis 23, let me read through all of this passage as we begin. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. We took a little over a month off from our series in Genesis, and the last time we were in the Genesis back in December, we were in Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham was called to give everything that he had over to the Lord and namely his son Isaac, the promised son that he had just received. That was the greatest test of his faith back in Genesis chapter 22. And by God's grace, Abraham passed that test. He demonstrated faith in believing that not even death could nullify 
the promises of God. He understood that God's promises were more powerful than death itself. And so he obeyed God by faith and he passed the test. And thereafter, in that chapter, Abraham was assured of the promises of God. Here in chapter 23, we see the story of Abraham. It's coming toward the end. So the chapter begins with Sarah's death and it ends with her burial. But chapter 23 is mainly about Abraham buying a plot of land in Canaan to bury his wife, Sarah. Now, why a whole chapter on a negotiation over a field and a cave? I mean, it seems like maybe Moses, the narrator of Genesis, could have kept the word count down and just simply told us, you know, he, he bought a piece of land there and buried her, and, and like, boom, let's get on to chapter 24. But we have this long piece of negotiation here, a good amount of space to show us the purchase of this property. In fact, this property is significant in Genesis. It, it shows up three times later in the book of, of Genesis. So anytime we see something like this, this amount of space, this purchase mentioned later, we need to know there's something significant happening here that Moses wants us to understand. I think a little of it's this, that even with the death of his wife, Abraham has his eye on the promises of God. I'll repeat that. We'll get through these cracks, all right? Even with the death of his wife, Abraham has his eye on the promises of God. Well, the main idea I want you to see this morning in this passage is this. Suffering is the occasion that God often uses to point us to his faithfulness. Suffering is often the occasion that God uses to point us to his faithfulness. As we make our way through this entire chapter this morning, I want us to see two truths about suffering. The first one we find in verses 1 through 2, the first truth I want us to see about suffering. Is this sound working? Can y'all hear me in the back? I don't know if it crackled after that. Are we good back there? Okay, thank you. Uh, two truths about suffering, verses 1 through 2. The first truth, suffering comes before glory. Suffering comes before glory. Sarah lived 127 years. She left behind her husband, Abraham, and their son, Isaac. At that time, Isaac was likely around 37 years old. She was a woman who followed God. She received promises from God. The Lord promised her to give her a son, Isaac. And even when she was beyond her childbearing years, the Lord came and gave her that son. She lived by faith. Sarah is mentioned by the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11. She's a woman who walked by faith. She trusted God's faithfulness to his promise. She lived a life of faith, and she died. 127 years, that's a, a long life. But if you remember in the scope of Genesis, 127 years really isn't near as much as what we saw in the beginning of the book of Genesis. You see, before the fall, no one was going to die. Before Genesis chapter 3, sin wasn't in the world and death wasn't either. So no one was going to die. And then we thought through, as we saw in the book of Genesis, people living hundreds and hundreds of years before God's wrath and judgment came in the flood. After the flood, we start to see lifespans shortening. And so 127 years, a long time for us, but we just see the, the impact of sin and death on life. We see a picture here of, of suffering. You see, the reality of death, it's all over the pages of the Bible. And therefore, Christians, we can think honestly about death. We can talk honestly about death. 
It's a, it's a topic for us not to avoid. It's a topic for us to consider. And I wonder for you, if you live in light of the brevity of life and the certainty of death, do you live your life in honest view of death? We see the detail in verse 2 that Sarah died in the land of Canaan. Now that was a land that was not yet her own. It's a land that she had been promised, and it had been almost 62 years since she and her husband left their homeland of Ur. God called them out of a land of idolatry, called them out of that land to a land that he was to show them. He called them to a place to, to worship. And Abraham had been married to Sarah for over 100 years. That was a gift from God, over 100 years of marriage, and their marriage had endured so much. Difficulties failures. Look at the trouble they found themselves in, oftentimes because of their own sin. But their marriage had also seen victories. God's grace shown to them over the course of their marriage. And for Abraham to lose Sarah, it was a painful loss. Look at verse 2. We see here Abraham, he went to mourn for Sarah, and, and he wept. You know, there is no closer human relationship than husband and wife. And some of you know the pain of losing a husband or a wife. It's, it's a deep pain. It's a hardship. And sometimes Christians wonder, is it right to mourn? Well, we see Abraham mourn, and he was a man of faith. So we understand that, that faith doesn't lead you to say, well, you know, thankful for the time we had, and I, you know, I'm just you know, going to remain happy. Well, it's good to be sad and to mourn. Death is an enemy. Death is not something that we celebrate. We celebrate Jesus Christ, the one who scored victory over death. But in 1 Corinthians 15 and in other places we see in the scriptures, death is referred to as an enemy. It's painful. Death separates us from loved ones. And Abraham was separated from his wife. And it was good, and it was right for him to mourn. Now, I read this week more about this mourning process. Back in that time, there was a whole process of, of weeping aloud and rending your garments and shaving your beard and lots of things culturally that they would do to display a time of sadness and loss and weeping. Again, death is a, a terrible thing. And when someone suffers death, it's good and right to mourn the loved ones that we've Lost. It certainly doesn't mean you're lacking faith if you mourn. In fact, if you have faith, you understand how terrible of a thing death is. And at the same time, you can have hope in the sure promises of God and the victory that's found in Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life. Well, this was a sad moment. Death separated Abraham from Sarah, and death took Sarah before she received the promises from God. God had promised them land on three occasions in Genesis, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 15. We see this promise that this land would be for Abraham and for his offspring, and yet Sarah died before they received this promise. And while this chapter is marked by a sad occasion, it's also a chapter that is filled with hope. Abraham did not give up hope. He kept hoping in the promises of of God. Now, we already saw in Genesis 22 with the son Isaac that Abraham did not believe that death could undo the promises of God. And we see here in Genesis chapter 23 that he was sad, and yet he had hope 
that God's promises remain. His wife didn't remain, but God's promises did. And the death of Sarah became the occasion that God used to point Abraham to his eternal promises. That's the way the death of loved ones often works for Christians. It's a sad moment. It's a moment of of, of mourning and sadness, but it's often the occasion that God uses to remind us of his promises. It's often the occasion that God uses to remind us of just how brief this life is, that every day is a gift from him, that we can enjoy God's daily gifts, but we must not presume upon the future. We must look to God and seek to fear him and keep his commandments today. We should live today in light of that day. When the life of Abraham and Sarah, we see that suffering, it came before glory. Sarah was the first in a long line of people who suffered death not having received what was promised. Sherry just read for us Hebrews chapter 11, where we see that the author of Hebrews, he mentions Sarah's life when expounding on faith being the assurance of things hoped for. Now, she longed for this promised land, but to be sure, the writer of Hebrews tells us she received land. She received heavenly land. She received the full presence of God. She received uninterrupted worship. That was the reason God led them out of her in the first place, was to come and to worship him. And while she didn't get to live to see that land, she received something far greater than promised land here on earth. Let me read for us Hebrews 11, verse 13 again. It says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Sarah's faith longed to be with God in heaven. She suffered, she died, and then she immediately entered into glory. And so it is for all of those who trust in Jesus Christ. You know, we can look at pain and we can look at suffering. We don't, we don't have to overlook it. We don't act, that, act like it's not a big deal or we're not troubled by it or it doesn't hurt. But at the same time, we can also understand that our pain and suffering doesn't define us. It doesn't have the last word in our lives. It doesn't undo any of God's promises Though sometimes we might be tempted to doubt God's goodness and his timing and his faithfulness, the Christian keeps coming back to the sure and unchanging God that we serve, and therefore all of his promises are sure. Our pain, our suffering does not change the promises of God or his purposes. For those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, on the other end of our suffering is that glory that we await. Suffering comes before glory. And we have hope today as Christians that a homeland is being prepared for us today by Jesus Christ himself. In John chapter 14, verse 2, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. Well, brother and sister in the Lord, what is it that presently tempts you to despair? It could be mourning death. We mentioned earlier, I know members of our church have loved ones in hospice facing death. That's a hard and difficult situation. I'm sure there's physical pain, emotional pain in this church that many of us don't know about that you might be suffering. There's there's hardships and trials of all different sorts of kind that we may know. And those trials and tests, they often are temptations for us to despair. But God is at work in all of those trials. And his desire is to test our faith, to show us more of himself, to wean us away from the longings of this present world, that we might know him more and trust him more. And so Christian, this is an opportunity, whatever tempts us to despair, that we would ask the Lord to use that pain and suffering to point us to hope that can be found in Jesus, to point our hearts towards the glory that awaits us one day. Suffering comes before glory. Well, in the story of the rest of the chapter, we see a second truth about suffering. In verses 3 through 18, I want us to see this truth. God's promises outlast suffering. God's promises outlast suffering. Well, what normally would have happened in that time with a death is that after the time of mourning was completed, you would return back to your homeland for a a burial. So the land of Canaan was not Sarah's homeland. It would have been culturally normal for Abraham to go back to to Ur, to his homeland, to his ancestral homeland, and, and bury her there. But we see in this section that he goes to talk to the Hittites to buy, to possess property there in the land of Canaan. So Sarah, he was determined, would be buried in the promised land. We see in verse 4 that Abraham acknowledges he's a sojourner and a foreigner, meaning as, as such, he had no right to buy property there in the land of Canaan. Foreigners could not acquire land there. But see, God had promised to him that that land would eventually become his and his descendants after him. And so he's determined to bury her in the promised land of Canaan. And in verses 3 through 16, we see negotiations for this piece of land and a cave. And again, Moses, the narrator of of Genesis, he has a purpose in spending so much time on this negotiation. It's not to teach us the art of the deal and how to be a good negotiator. It's not like to give us some inspiration in that. The purpose here is to show us the hope and the determination that God gave to Abraham to take God at his word. Look at this negotiation. Let's take a look at it briefly. Because again, the purpose here is to show us Abraham's faith in God's promise that a time of mourning, the loss of his wife, it was a sad time, but it was not a time that he was left in despair. It was an occasion for for hope. In verses 5 through 6, we see that the Hittites offer Abraham his choice of of any tomb. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Like you could use any tomb you want, the choicest tomb, Pick it out, Abraham. It's yours. We're happy for you to use it. But their offer wasn't to own that land. It wasn't to own the cave or tomb. Rather, they were merely offering him the use of that tomb. They could bury his wife there, but he wouldn't possess 
that particular part of the land. So Abraham responds in verse 9, he would pay full price. He asked them to speak to this guy, Ephron, the son of Zohar, a leader there in the land apparently, and that let him know I'll pay full price for the land. And the next step in the negotiations there in verse 11, where Ephron, he, he speaks up three different times and says, I'll give it to you. So, so three times, negotiations, I'll give it to you. Look at verse 11. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that's in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Three times, I'm giving you this, but Abraham responds in verse 13 again that he will give the price of the field. He doesn't want to be given this land. He wants to pay full price. Is he just being kind, kind of like, you know, when people after dinner, you're like, I'll take the ticket. No, you take it. And really, you're wanting them to take it, right? So you're saying, I'll take it. And you're hoping they'll say, no, 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 I got it. I'll pay for our dinner. Is that what's happening here? Is he just not a good negotiator? No, we've seen this before back in Genesis chapter 14, that Abraham back then refused gifts from the king of Sodom. He wouldn't even take a sandal strap from the pagan king of Sodom because he didn't want anyone to look at riches or possessions he had and attribute it to the glory of the king of Sodom. He wanted God to get the glory in his life. He wanted it to be abundantly clear that all the possessions he had came from God. And I think that's what's happening here in Genesis chapter 23. Abraham will not have a pagan in the land get glory for giving him land. He wants the glory to go to God. He wants to receive a piece of this land, a foretaste of the promise from God himself. Abraham put his hope in the Lord to own a piece of the land. He chose not to return to his ancestral homeland. He chose not to receive a free piece of property. Again, this offer to give a tomb was the permission to use the land, not to own it. Presumably, he could have put his wife's remains there, but she would have been forgotten. It wouldn't have been a place where all of his ancestors and future generations would have returned for themselves to be buried. It wouldn't have accomplished what Abraham desired and longed for. He wants to possess a piece of the land. He doesn't want his wife buried in a grave belonging to a Canaanite, a grave that would end up being forgotten. He wants to possess this piece of land as permanent, a permanent place for his ancestors to be buried. Now, this was putting down a claim on the land. There would be no going back to Ur. They would build their hope, him and his descendants after him, around this promised land. He was building his hope around God's promise. Now Ephron takes advantage of the situation. In verse 15, he asks for 400 shekels of silver. Now shekel is a, a measurement of, of weight. And I read this week, this would have been around a little over 100 pounds of silver. From my study this week, it seems like this likely was an inflated price. Later on in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 24, we read that David only paid 50 shekels of silver for the purchase of land that the temple was built on. So 50 compared to 400 here. It seems like an inflated price. You think that Charlotte home prices are crazy right now. That was an inflated price for a piece of the promised land. It was an enormous amount of money to pay for land. Yet Abraham had confidence that this land would go to him and to his descendants after him, just like God had promised. He wanted Sarah's body to be buried there in the heart of Canaan. 
He believed God that one day his descendants would own all of that land. And so therefore, he pays full price in verse 16. He weighed out the silver and he paid the full asking price. There was no counter offer. He didn't want to risk losing this land and offending Ephron. Here's the full price. I want a piece of this land. Now, the details of what he owns are now recorded in verse 17. It almost reads kind of like a real estate contract in verse 17. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession. It was there at the city gate, the place of business. So, so simply put, Abraham is now the legal owner of land in the promised land of Canaan. Moses took this amount of space to show that Abraham went from sojourner to owner, foreigner traveling through the land, living in tents. Here's the first piece of land that God gave him. He's an owner, just a small piece, a little foretaste of what was yet to come. You see, this was the beginning of the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham, he was promised descendants. At this point in the story, he and Sarah had how many descendants together? One, Isaac. There were many more yet to come, but all they got to know was, was one. God had showed him the land of Canaan, promised him that all of it would be his and his descendants, but he only got to possess this little small piece of property, yet it was his, and it was his descendants permanently. Some have referred to these fulfillments as a, a down payment on the promise. Some have referred to it as the, the kind of this beginning, this first fruits, meaning the first fruits of a crop show that a sure harvest is yet to come. God was beginning the fulfillment of the promise to give a homeland to his people, and the best was yet to come. The greatest part was yet to come. This cave and field in the promised land, they were the first fruits, and God would surely and finally fulfill his promise. If you follow the story of the Old Testament, you see that 400 years later, through the conquest in Joshua, this promised land became a possession of God's people there, Israel. Then on into the New Testament, Jesus expanded the land to include all the earth. God, is, he created all the earth. And glory and honor is due his name in all the earth. Jesus commissioned his disciples, therefore, to go and bring God glory and to make disciples of, of all nations. There would be no boundaries geographically. There would be no people groups that would not be called to repent and believe in Jesus Christ and give God glory. And the story of the Bible ends again thinking about land. When Christ returns, God's people will receive land. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 1, we read that we will inherit, those who trusted in Christ, will inherit new heavens and a new what? A new earth. The Bible begins with land and it ends with land, redeemed and purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. And for God's people today, the church, those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, like Abraham and Sarah, we still wait for the final fulfillment of God's promise. We wait for the return of Jesus Christ. As wonderful as it is to know Jesus Christ now, 
as wonderful as it is to be known by him and to serve him now in this life, the best is yet to come. The best awaits us. You see the story, it continues on in verse 19 with Sarah being buried. The burial, again, an important part of the story to record. Abraham, he will end up also being buried at this cave he purchased. Isaac and Jacob would be buried here at this cave. Joseph demands his bones be taken back to this place, to this cave. We understand the significance of this place, that Abraham buries Sarah in the land in faith, that even though his wife has died, God's promises remain. God is still going to make good on his promise. Over a thousand years later, one of Abraham's descendants, Jesus, was born in the land of Canaan. He came down to this land, sent to God's people as the long-awaited-for Messiah for Israel. He suffered, and he died there in that promised land, a suffering and a death unlike any death in that promised land of Israel. He willingly laid his life down as the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. He came as a payment for the sins of anyone who would turn and trust in him. You see, his suffering came before glory. Jesus, the innocent one, suffered, and he bled, and he died there on the cross. He was buried in a tomb, dead, three days. But three days after dying and being buried in a tomb, he rose from dead in glory. Suffering was given to him. He willingly laid his life down, and yet glory was received in God, raising him from the dead. And today, Jesus Christ extends the promises of God, forgiveness of sins, new life in Christ, reconciliation with the God who created you, life with God now and forevermore in heaven. He extends those promises to anyone who would repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, again, we, we say this every week, we're so glad that you're here. I hope you come back next week. We hope you keep coming back. Coming to church is a good place to hear more about who God is and what he's done in Jesus Christ. But if this is the only time I got you, I want you to know this. God loves you. He offers you forgiveness of sins for anything you've done. You will die one day, maybe sooner than you think. And for Christians, by God's grace, He's led us to repent of our sin. We enjoy him now. The hope we have this morning, this group of Christians, we are living for what life will be like 5,000 years from now. You can live for what life's going to be like next year, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, what your portfolio will look like, what your achievements and accomplishments will look like. Those will not come with you. They might be things to enjoy and be good stewards of here while on earth, but rather than just living your life for what's going to happen five years from now or ten years from now, and haven't we learned anything in the last 18 months? We don't really know what the future holds. Live your life for what will matter 5,000 years from now. You will live forever, and you have an opportunity today to repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And I would plead with you, make that decision today. Come and see any of us, someone who brought you, see any of our pastors at the door or at the tent on the way out. We want you to know God's promises in this life and in the next. Well, Genesis 23, Sarah's death, it's the occasion 
But it's not the point of the narrative. The point of the story is God's faithfulness to his promise. And isn't that how it often works in the lives of Christians? Oftentimes our suffering is the occasion in our lives that God uses to point us to his faithfulness, to point us to his promises. Suffering is the occasion, but it is not the point. It's not the end. We have confidence as Christians that our pain is never wasted. Christ uses that pain to complete his work in us. And God's good purpose in suffering is to draw our eyes upward from this life, to look to the Lord and to his promises. The hope we have as Christians is that the promises of God will outlast our suffering. You see, a Christian, it's important for us to understand this, a Christian has never met a trial that they will not outlast. Because even in that final trial of death, what awaits us on the other side is glory. Unimaginable glory. We may face the same trials from now until the day we die, but that trial will not have the final word. Brother and sister in Christ, we understand this, that we've never met a trial that we will not outlast because we will immediately, when we die and leave this earth, we will immediately receive the reward of being in the arms of our everlasting Father, of knowing His love, as good as it is to know His love this morning, as comforting as it is to know His love morning, how much greater will it be on that day? We fully know His love, and nothing will ever interrupt that. We won't have good days and hard days. It'll be nothing but days with him, unending days in his presence. You see, for those who are in Christ, this life is not as good as it gets. We know that the best is yet to come. It is so wonderful to know God and his goodness now, but the best is yet to come. As much as God has done for us already, Christian, think about how much more he's promised to do as faithful as he's shown himself to be to us. We've not yet received the final promise when he will save us from this body of death. You see, the Christian hope, the hope of all who die in faith, is that all that we see that God has done for us in this life, how much more will he do in the next? Consider all that is yet to come. In this life, he has freed us from the power of sin. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord for that. What a wonderful experience to be freed from the slavery of sin. But in the next life, he will free us from the presence of sin. Sin will no longer pester us. We'll no longer be tempted to dishonor our God. Sin and death will forever be destroyed in the next life. In this life, he comforts us as we mourn death. And what joy it is to know the comfort and the hope of our Lord. He meets us in our tears. He meets us in our sorrows. He comforts us in our pain. But look out for the next life because there will be no tears or sorrows. He will wipe those tears away forever. There will be no pain. In this life, he gives us joy in the midst of pain, joy that we need, joy that we can only find in him in the midst of pain. In the next life, all we will know is joy. There won't be a mixture of joy and pain. All we'll know is joy. All we will know is God. In this life, we have the gift of assembling together as God's People, but these assemblies break up and we go about our weeks and go to our different places. In the next life, congregations will never break up and Sabbaths will never have an end. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 puts it like this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then 
face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Brother and sister in Christ, consider it. Consider your life today. There's a glory that awaits every believer. Christian, this unending joy is what your life will look like 5,000 years from now. Let's live today in light of that day. And I wonder this morning, Christian, what are you giving your life to that will matter 5,000 years from now? There's so many things that seem to matter in our mind, that call for our attention, that trouble us and bother us, that that will not matter 5,000 years from now. We will not be dwelling on them. You've heard me quote J.C. Ryle, that we'll look back and wonder how much we made of our cross and how little we thought about our crown, this side of glory. Give your life to what will matter 5,000 years from now. Live today in light of that day. And even consider in your pain and suffering, 5,000 years from now, that suffering, it will be gone. You won't remember it. All you remember is joy and love in the Lord. Suffering comes before glory, yet even the thorny ways that we travel now, they lead to a joyful end. God's promises outlast our suffering, and the other side is even greater than we can imagine. Christ will be ours forevermore. So the next time you're tempted to despair, the next time that you know pain and grief, and suffering, and are tempted to despair and live without hope. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Let's bow and pray. Father, we are in need of of regular reminders of the hope that you've given us in Jesus. Or we are in need regularly of you stripping away the gaze of our eyes being focused on the promises of this present and fleeting world. May you today lead the eyes of our heart away from living for self, away from living for this present moment. Father, help us to live today in light of that day that we stand before you. Lord, help us to desire today to honor you and to please you and to serve you. Help us this day to enjoy you and to enjoy knowing you and worshiping you. And Lord, help us to give ourselves today to what will matter on that last day. And Lord, even as we gather now as a church and get a foretaste of heaven, a foretaste of what it will be like to forever gather around your throne, Lord, grow within us an appetite and a hunger for that day. Lord, comfort us with words of hope with the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how much you've loved us in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.